been a quite a striking, wondrous day on this planet today, don't you think? Really, just so beautiful, wondrous, yet troubled, but beautiful. Really quite moving. And when Aaron and I, you know, went for this walk where we were taking in the, the eclipse, and I think what was coming to me is just remembering where we are right now on this planet. And it is such a mysterious thing. Here we are on this little planet. And right now, so they say, we're traveling at 67,000 miles per hour around the sun in relationship to the sun. And it's fascinating because the sun that we're spinning around is located just on one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy. Just a little dot. That's all it is. And that arm is actually spinning around the center of the Milky Way. Supposedly at a, at a velocity of 558,000 miles per hour. In the midst of what they think now is, uh, you know, over a trillion stars. And the Milky Way galaxy is just a small part of a whole conglomeration of other galaxies. And it's in this uh, uh, cluster called the local group, which is part of even a bigger uh, cluster, the, what they call the Virgo supercluster, containing a hundred, over a hundred galaxy groups or clusters. So I find this helpful to remember how quickly we're going. So when you feel like your mind has been wandering so much at such a velocity, you now know why. It's because where you're located. It is such a trip, don't you think, that here we are, this teeny little dot, in the midst of this activity of living and dying, this, this mis- partaking in of this mysterious thing of being aware in this vast universe. It is quite wondrous and quite breathtaking when I reflect on that, just this activity of living, this activity of being. And to be alive, being born, going from one cell and then all that diversification to, to create us. Brian Swim put it well, he said, four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock, and now it can sing opera. (laughs) Spectacular. When I think back, uh, when I first began practicing meditation, I think this was one of the appealing and important aspects of this path and this practice is it, it began to allow me to touch this mystery, 
this mystery of being a part of it all. I think this is also one of the reasons why I explored Zen practice so deeply is because it sometimes expressed that mystery in ways that I found so helpful. And at times, uh, touching that mystery, which I want to talk a little bit about, becoming intimate with that, so often I find is really the, um, the perfect antidote for how I usually try to approach the difficulties in my life. You know, this mind is so involved in trying to figure it all out, finding the answer, trying to analyze in a way that I'll come to that perfect solution. You ever try that? (laughs) Maybe you've been more successful than I have. And I don't mean to say that there's not a place to reflect and to think upon. It's just that my mind seems to do it in a way that drives me in circles. And I think that's, for me, the power of this practice because it allows me to come into simply touching my experience, to be with it and to allow something different to arise out of that. And I feel like in some ways that's what we're here exploring together in maybe our own different ways, but maybe similar too. And it's, it really is interwoven with this path of this practice, even with um, you know, Theravada Buddhism. For example, this afternoon, uh, I invite you to try to get a, a different taste of this mysterious thing called awareness. We can have so many assumptions about it. And some of what I was sharing with you was uh, really influenced by the Thai forest tradition. They really have a a different way of of, uh, sometimes talking about this nature of awareness and practicing around it. And one of the the great Thai forest monastics that really some people feel gave a resurgence of going back into the, the forest and practicing was Ajahn Mun. And his story is really quite interesting, really a phenomenal practitioner. Um, there's a quite an interesting biography about him where you get, really get a different perspective of, of sometimes how uh, 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 people see and view the unfolding of practice. But anyway, he was uh, very passionate about the Dharma and really wanted to wake up. And so he walked on foot to Burma from Thailand, which I want to point out is not a short distance. And he said he traveled all over Burma to see if he could find someone who could teach him the way, the way to awakening. And he said, I, I could not um, find someone, so I went to the forest. And he said, let the forest be my teacher towards awakening. And he spent most of his life uh, practicing in the, in the forests of Thailand. And I find it interesting that this is, you know, some of the way he spoke about the nature of awareness, I think, in some ways maybe the forest taught him so much about the Dhamma in this way, and I find inspiration from a story for what we do here at Vaisitos. And again, I, I, I really want to point out that this is so part and parcel of this, this path as Aaron and I have been sharing with you. You know, you, you find that even in the instructions, like in the, the, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, which is uh, a key part of this tradition. As the Buddha says in, the, in, in that discourse, he says, and how bhikkhus, or 
how practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating the body as a body? How does one become mindful of the body? Here a practitioner, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down. So I want to point out, that's the first instruction. And then one brings, folds their legs, keeps their body erect, and then establishes mindfulness in front of them. So what's often talked about is establishing mindfulness, but we forget about going to the root of the tree or to a forest. But that is part of the meditation instruction that we're given. So this is interwoven with with really the the foundation of mindfulness, at least in, in, in these early discourses. And it's not only in, in where you find it in early Buddhism, but it takes a really striking uh, expression when, when Buddhism comes into China, and there's a, a different sense, a different relationship to the natural world, and that influences uh, how they see the unfolding of this path of awakening, how they, they talk about uh, Buddhism. It's, it's really so intertwined with the natural world. For example, I want to share with you a poem that was written by uh, Su Dongbo, who was a... Uh, Chinese poet from the Song Dynasty in the 12th century. And he puts it this way, his, his, his understanding of the unfolding of the path and waking up to the teachings. And here he's talking about the Buddha, but in a very different way. He says, The sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are her pure body. In this night, I hear, I hear the teachings, I hear the myriad sutras uttered by the Buddha. How can I relate to others what they say? Do you hear his realization, really, under, finally understanding that the sound of the valley stream out there is, is the teaching, that's, that's the Buddha speaking to us. The forms of the mountains, the flowers, the wind going through the aspens. That's, that's the Buddha, the Buddha himself or herself, however you want to situate the Buddha, speaking to us right now in this moment. We don't have to go back to some texts and learn Pali to hear the Buddha. It's actually happening right now. And he's saying that that's actually, that's the path and that's the practice that we're doing. I'm so grateful for this, this perspective. And I, I think this is the, the, the beauty of when we see Buddhism come into different cultures is it, it, it starts to illuminate aspects of the path that we might not have heard when, when it was just in India. It was really quite radically different, but really important. And I think that's what I want to explore with you tonight to help us touch this mystery is how do you, again, hear the Buddha speak to you? And how do you do this in a way that informs your practice in this path? How can we refine our ears, our bodies, to really hear these teachings that are going on moment after moment?
what is the, the Buddha saying to you out there? And of course, as I always mentioned the first night, it's tricky. It's not in words so much. But, uh, really a different language. You could say the language mostly of the body. What is the Buddha saying to you? I guess, first of all, I want to say, I have no idea what the Buddha is saying to you. <laughs> It'd be crazy to think that I knew that. So I want to be really clear. What I'm sharing with you is just what I feel like I'm starting to begin to hear, and maybe it will connect with what you're hearing and understanding out there, but it, it might be something completely different than what I share tonight. The Buddha has a particular way of speaking to me because I'm situated particular in a particular way. And I think it's important to acknowledge, to allow, to really to understand that, that there might be all kinds of teachings out there that you come across in the land. And yet maybe, maybe a little of what I've heard might overlap with what you hear or understand, I'm not sure. I feel that when I listen out there, it is addressing a particular problem because so much of this path is about this. As it said, you know, the Buddha only taught two things, the suffering and the end of suffering. So sometimes I hear I'm sensitive and I'm present in a way that addresses the challenges and difficulties that I face and the challenges and difficulties that this world faces. And we find this in the teachings, just in terms of how the Buddha explains, at least the Buddha, early Buddhism, or sometimes it sounds like it's the Buddha out there as well, um, that the, the problem, he says, really it comes down to ignorance. The, the Pali word is avidya, which is, uh, a lot of times it's translated as ignorance, or quite literally, it's, it's um, the vidya is to see or to know, and then the A is just negating that. So, so not seeing clearly or not knowing clearly. But it's a, a particular flavor of, of knowing. And I, I'm grateful for Ajahn Suchita really pointing this out. It's a kind of vidya, a kind of knowing that's more bodily. So a way of translating it, when I get this from him, which I appreciate it, is vidya, vidya is the sense of being out of touch, which is somehow uh, uh, resonates for me a little bit more than just ignorance. Oh, I'm somehow out of touch. I'm out of touch with, with what's going on up there. That's the problem. And as a result of that, I suffer. And not only do I suffer, but the world suffers in some manner as well. I'm out of touch. I, I misperceive. I don't see clearly. And I want to share with you a particular flavor of being out of touch, of misperceiving that you might be able to relate to. And I, I find it a, a common, a modern wound, a common uh, modern sense of dukkha, of suffering. And it's this uh, uh, taking the form of, of this feeling of, of uh, this separate sense of self and this this feeling of the separate sense of self, also uh, particular flavors I'm talking about. 
the particular flavors of a separate sense of self that has these narratives or stories of I don't belong. I don't belong in terms of the people I find myself around. I don't belong in terms of the world that I find myself around. And what arises the activity of isolating or separating. And so often, you know, this feeling of not belonging can be fueled, fueled by family. And it's become systemic and structural, right? Of, of structures and systems saying who's included and who's not included on so many different levels and, and uh, categories. Sometimes uh, very explicitly said, sometimes just implicitly yet incredibly powerfully spoken in the way society is structured. And what I find in myself is that so much of this not belonging uh, intertwines with a sense of unworthiness. And when I feel it, I feel like something's wrong with me. And it feels so core, because when I don't belong, then that must be the reason. And it seems to fuel the judging mind, because it's like the judging mind feels like it has the solution. And that's if it like really keeps me in line then maybe, maybe I will be included in some way. You ever feel that? Right? And you can sense that in the judging mind. Sometimes I can see how desperate it is because it's yelling and screaming to make sure that I act in a certain way with the hope or the promise that maybe someday I'll be perfect and belong through this project of perfection. It hasn't worked yet, just point that out, at least for me. I bless its little heart, but it's so skillful. And sometimes we idealize awakening as some kind of um, a bomb that is just really a, a deluded sense of wanting to be perfect. Actually, Jack Engler talks about this, this quality of striving for a kind of a, awakening that really is just a, uh, a deluded wish to be perfect. As he says, he says, enlightenment can be imagined as a heaven sense embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal, a state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled, a state in which we finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything, above criticism and reproach, and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by the secret wish to be special, which is so much an attempt to be perfect, if not superior. Enlightenment will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that have been lacking. You ever feel those impulses? You ever wish that awakening was that? Finally being special, finally above all the hurts and the challenges of being a human being. And that's just 
Well, that's just this, this unskillful desperation to want to belong and to go about it in an unskillful way. And I want to point out, this is, this is not the awakening that the Buddha talked about. Something different. And yet we long. There's some part of us that knows that there's something deeper out there, that, we, that there is a place that we do truly belong, which is actually here. The Zen poet Ryokan puts it well. He, he has this poem called Caged Birds. He says, Time and again, you too must long for your old nest deep in the mountain. So again, Time and again, you too must long for your old nest deep in the mountain. Have you felt that longing like the caged bird? To find that deep nest where we belong, deep in the mountain. And I can see my mind, it cages me in a way. I know that longing of the caged bird. Okay, a little bit more of the bad news, I'm sorry. I guess I kind of waxed on about this. Just one more point. I, I, I think it's important to also acknowledge it, especially around the natural environment. I think this is so important to see this. I remember this becoming crystal clear to me many years ago. I was leading a retreat, and, and some woman had this really this this powerful experience. She was hiking way way down the, the the stream, and she came across a black bear. And for her, it was really cool. It wasn't a frightening thing. It was actually really wondrous. And she came back, and what she said is. She said, it was so beautiful, and I realized that that bear belonged here more than I did. Do you know that feeling? I mean, it, well, when I first heard it, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what I feel. But it really just speaks to my sense of separation, of exclusion. You know, I, and, and it makes sense. You know, I, I come from a species that's done so much damage to this planet that it feels like there really is no place for me. And so I want to talk about the depth of, of that. We're out of touch. And yet, and yet I find with this practice, I think there's something so powerful about doing this practice in this environment. Because it allows, it allows for a different sense of being in the world. And some of you might have already begun to touch this a sense of beginning to get a, a feeling sense of, of belonging, a sense of that sense of separation becoming more porous and more thin and feeling a kind of intimacy for that world that we belong to out there. 
It could be with the rustle of the wind in the aspens, the sound of the stream, and feeling that intimacy. And it might be just for a moment when the stories drop and your heart opens a little bit and you begin to find that old nest in the mountain that's your home. that's the promise of this is that we begin to to taste that as Sutambo did where, where it felt like there was such intimacy that it was the Buddha speaking to him moment after moment or as the Zen master Dogen said he said I, I came to realize that this heart and mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great white earth the sun and the moon and the stars the intimacy, the intimacy that we have a potential for. And I, I want to point out, the biggest thing I, I, I want to mention about this is how accessible these tastes of belonging, of true belonging, of finding one's old nest here at Vallecitos, how, how possible it is for all of us. Sometimes I'm, I'm leery of myself to share poems from someone like the Zen Master Dogen, as if trying to put it up as an archetype. This is something that all of you have probably felt a little bit here. A little bit of simply being at home. It doesn't have to be anything grand. It's just the thinning out of the separateness. We don't have to go for the grand dropping away, but just where it's just a little bit thinner when I feel a little bit more of that spiritual intimacy with experience, with the natural world where it's the reminder, oh, actually, I, I do belong. There is a sense of belonging. How can it be otherwise? So how to get a, a feeling sense of this? Mm-hmm. A quote from John O'Donoghue, which I think points us in the right direction. He says, our bodies know that they belong. It's our minds that make our lives so homeless. And this is why Aaron and I have really spent, (laughs) now the entirety of the retreat, I think, really emphasizing the importance of coming into the body. Because the body is, is already intimately connected with the environment. It's feeling the wind. It's hearing the sound of the birds. It's seeing the deer or the snake slither in the grass. And when I take that in on a bodily level, you, you might also feel that sense of, oh yeah, there is a sense that, oh yeah, uh, there, there is a place for me here too. So it's just an invitation to continue to feel into the body. When you feel into the body, you're feeling into this environment. And also another thing that I do, which I find really quite important, is um, to feel into the heart center. So when I'm, for example, doing walking, if I'm doing walking meditation out in the woods, 
or even sitting out in the forest somewhere, I'll check into the heart center so I can get a sense of the, the emotional impact of this environment. Because it's there where I can feel kind of that, that emotional intimacy, which is so important. And some of you might have felt that at times, like the heart opening in some way to being here. Even if it's just for a moment. I'm just talking about moments of this, not days. Right? Most of the days your mind's just wandering, doing its crazy thing, this and that. But then there's these moments of that. So checking in with the heart center. And I do want to clarify something, just as an aside. This isn't about um, we're all one or we're all trying to become the same. The, the, the wonderful thing about a, a force is there's a sense of multiplicity there. There's all kinds of difference, and a particular kind of difference, which I want to point out. It's the difference for, the difference for each other, rather than the difference from each other. I think that's the beauty of how a forest works. It's called biodiversity, is that things are different for each other. It's a supportive thing. I mean, just a, a little thing about that. that. There's such a teaching in that. I, I, um, I probably am guilty of this, and I know the, sometimes the institutions I work, uh, worked with is sometimes guilty of this. Is sometimes we want you know, difference from each other, what I would call, and sometimes we're just looking for difference, just so... I can feel good, right? In the sense of, you know, this can sometimes happen around um, maybe whiteness in the sense of, oh, I, I feel so guilty about being white. It'd be, it'd be nice, to, nice to have just different people around me just so I can feel better. But that's not difference for each other. That's difference from each other. Difference for each other is embedded in wisdom and a, and a deeper understanding and compassion. The other one is just um, selfish. It's just uh, short-sighted. It's the, you could say, the, the arising of tokenism. So these are ways, the ways that we can practice to feel this sense of belonging. It, and I want to point out, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes when I, when I sense into the heart center when I'm doing this practice, sometimes what comes is the opposite. The feeling of isolation or loss or grief. And I also want to acknowledge that that too is part of the process. So much of, at least my path, is really having to go through periods of really feeling this impermanent world and, and, and going through the experiences of loss and grief. And it can be tough those feelings of grief. They can really, it can feel like it pervades our lives. There's a striking poem by W.S. Merwin. Uh, two lines, just, it's called Absence. It says, Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Maybe you know that experience where it feels like it has uh, uh, gone through us a loss so deeply, all the way through us, like thread through a needle. And it pervades our life. My entire life being stitched with its color. And that too we need to be with, to open to, 
to be in the mess of it. that I've found helpful in terms of this sense of, of intimacy, of belonging, is another gateway, is paying attention to impermanence. Just the flow, the rhythm of change out there. Uh, like one of the things that was so striking to me, the, you, you might remember the first time that we laid down when Aaron uh, led us out the first day on the land and when we were lying down, do you remember the, the rhythm of the wind coming through? It's really so powerful. And one of the things that I was trying to take in is also the flow of it. It would, it would crescendo and decrescendo in some kind of manner. And to feel that. And that's, that's feeling into flow, into impermanence. Because so much of what a separate sense of self is, this not belonging, is such, it's such a fixed idea. And then I, I, I create this kind of fixed quality around that sense. And when I take in more of the sense of flow and impermanence, it allows me to feel more of an intimacy of that flowing world out there. You know, specifically, sometimes what I'll do is, I'll, this is going to be really wonderful, to sit in front of the river and to have the eyes open. And, and often what I'll do is have that soft gaze that I was trying to introduce to you this afternoon of not looking particularly, but also allowing the eyes to take in just the change in the river, but not a sharp focus, a very soft focus, and having the breath as the anchor and then feeling, um, seeing, feeling, and hearing all of these these um, rhythms of change and allowing it to disrupt this fixed notion that I have of myself in the world can really be quite freeing in, in a sense. And when I say freeing, just for a moment, we're just looking for moments here of this. So they sometimes say in, in, in Dzogchen, short moments many times. It's <laughs> good, good uh, practice. And then lastly, I, I, uh, what I often hear from uh, the, the Buddha speaking to me out there is uh, reminded me how messy and non-linear it is, which is so helpful to remember. That's what I love about the forest. You know, these fallen trees here and there and brush here and there, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not linear, it's not nice and neat, I'm not in a city like that. <coughs> and it's relieving because meditation, the path, feels so much like that for me. And yet I want it to be different. I remember I was uh, backpacking with uh, my wife, we were kind of at a base camp and we were trying to hike up to this alpine lake that we'd seen on the map, but there was no um, human trail up there, and so we were taking animal trails and we started taking these animal trails. It was really sweet because we'd be on an animal trail and then it would kind of curve around a lot of the fallen trees. And then we'd get to another place and it'd start to curve around. And then we started to come upon where there was just a ton of fallen trees and we had to start to climb over all these fallen trees and scramble over them, which was a pain and exhausting. And my mind, and then sometimes the trail would come back a little bit and then a ton of fallen trees. And a lot of times in the... The, the fallen trees, my feeling 
that was there was like, I know there's a better way through this. I know there's like a really good trail somewhere. <laughs> I just know we just need to find it because it's not supposed to be like this. Like there's got to be a trail, which is like the most ridiculous idea where if you saw where we were. But it, it was like the, the thought kept on coming up. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, that's not supposed to feel like this. It's supposed to feel like when we were back on the trail. Like, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's the path I want. You ever notice this? Oh, that, that's the path I want because that's what they always talk about. You know, they always talk about it kind of being nice and neat and they talk about following your breath and you bring your mind back and you notice that you're thinking and it seems so straightforward and it's nice and linear and then your heart opens and you feel like you belong and voila, your life's better. I still haven't found that. <laughs> so I just want to normalize. That's the wonderful thing about being out here. Can you take that in? I mean, they've actually made some of these trails so they're a little bit deceptive in that sense. It's more just like the forest. You're trying just to whack your way through the forest. That's what this path is about. It's messy, and the forest teaches us that. expresses some of this, expresses the mess of this, and also the, this attempt, the attempt for perfection, or the attempt to get it all together in the hope that if I'm perfect, I'll belong in some kind of way, and actually breaking through that in some manner. It's a, a poem by uh, the woman, uh, Lisa Lewitz. She begins, you keep waiting for something to happen, the thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align for something to give, at least. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40 or 50 or 60, and some part of you realizes you are not alone, and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa pupa is brushed, it will die. 
And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, it's because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom, that this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and the writhing and the pushing until one day, one day you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. So on this retreat, may may we touch this mystery, the immense dawn and dusk of the body glistening and beautiful just as you are. And in a way that is, is, is connected with an aspiration for it to liberate all beings. Let's sit just for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.